Is a new era of progressivism really upon us? Does it stand a chance? The far left, the, the progressive wing. The Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warren flank of the Democratic Party. The, the Clinton days are over. The progressive movement is bigger. It was a question of bringing the party together around the progressive agenda. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, happy one-year anniversary to La Resistance. Well, thank you, Ron. Do you know you and I also met almost exactly a year ago, and I said to you then, the important story of the time was the Women's March. I was a witness to that, Heather. And in right honor of that, were. I got you an even bigger march this year. Yeah, you, and you, you're just doing fabulously for the just progressive movement. Just wait till next year. <laughs> we, you know, it's interesting because we... Just to be clear, Heather and I met on the night before the inauguration at a big conversation, really therapy session at the Kennedy Library. A thousand people, remember? Oh, yeah. Hugging each other, saying, oh, my, oh, me. Look, I think it's safe to say a year into the Trump presidency, there is a lot of momentum and enthusiasm in opposing Donald Trump. There's no doubt that's the core of this activist energy. But, But this week we want to look at the more specific identity of that big unwieldy group, the Democrats, the protesters, the activists, because they aren't just against Trump. It's not just what they're against. They have specific political goals, a profile, if you will, as to what they're for. More and more, without a doubt, they're what you would call progressive. And that may seem like a given, but it's actually not. It really is a change. And I guess the question is, why now is maybe nearly half the country beginning to turn more and more toward the left, uh, more than it has in decades? You know, progressive, in a way, is a term that's been knocking around, but has taken meat on the bone, if you will, in a way we did not see in mainstream politics in the 1980s, the 1990s, or the early 2000s. So why now? Heather, first, look at that word progressive. How do you define that big, unwieldy, soft edges word? Well, I wouldn't be the first one to define it. I mean, philosophically, progressivism is an idea about the way the world works. There, You can either think that humans are destined always to repeat the same mistakes and nothing's ever going to get any better, or you can believe that human society advances. It makes progress. And people who believe that you can actually make things better are progressives, just philosophically. But in America, it took on its own meaning at the end of the 19th century because it, it, took, it came to have this idea that the government – can actually implement policies like in social welfare or in its economic policies or by building infrastructure that can actually make progress happen. And why now? Why are we seeing a rise, a a kind of push, explosion even, of progressivism now? Isn't it fascinating? I'm always interested in the why now. You know, what what creates change and why? And my overarching sense of progressivism in this moment is that we're see- what we're seeing is a popular uprising of women and minorities against a government that doesn't represent the majority of Americans. So if you think about it, the GOP has run for a long way without a popular majority by controlling the national narrative, 
with Fox News. They're very good at it. They're very good at it. Tactically forceful. And by manipulating the system, you know, but they are now so far out of touch with most Americans that people are pushing back. And this is not the first time this has happened in America. To me, I look at this and it looks very much the way America looked in the 1890s. And it's going to be fascinating to see if it plays out the same way. We'll go back and talk about the 1890s a little later in the show. Uh, But let's 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 get our arms around what's happening here in this extraordinary present tense a year after Donald Trump arrives. And and we'll do that with our guest, Katrina Van Hoovel, editor and publisher of The Nation magazine. They just published a special issue, The Resistance Turns One. Katrina, welcome. Thank you, Ron. So, Katrina, right now, let's go right to present tense. The Democrats are getting a lot of heat for ending the government shutdown this Monday without a deal for the Dreamers. Uh, those 700, 800,000 folks who are here in America because of their folks, no fault of their own, you might say, living lives. Do you think the Democrats made the right choice by, by flirting and diving into this government shutdown playbook that's mostly Republican, certainly since Newt Gingrich in 1994? Was that wrong of them? You know- Shutdowns are tough, Ron. You've lived through a number of them. I mean, there's a blame game. There's a blame game. And I think the Democrats were divided. You know, we don't know what comes next. And I think the counter argument is that all that tactical war would be terrible for the country and that elections, in my view, are the proper method in some ways for the resolution. And so I look with hope toward 2018 for retaking the House at least. And, you know, the other thing that you've been talking a lot about is Coming out of the financial crisis, which you wrote about, Ron, coming out of, you know, the bailout, the tea parties, then Occupy, then an understanding of the great Gilded Age inequality in our country, into a movement moment, even before Trump was elected, we're seeing a resurgence of a kind of progressive politics that demands attention. And I think it's vital that Democrats not simply oppose Trump, but, you know, that Sure, exposes bait and switch on working people who voted for him, but got to remind Americans, people out there, what Democrats are for, which side they're on. You know, there is an activism that has been growing bit by bit. You mentioned Occupy Wall Street. Certainly, I covered the Iraq War. You, yeah. you felt it happening. Then, hey, we were lied to. They knew there were no weapons of mass destruction. Right. I reported that. And people said, now, hold on a second. What do we do when government does that to us? And young people lose their lives. And you could feel folks recognizing, again, that democracy is a participatory sport. And, and there's no doubt we are in a moment now that's very different than, than any certainly I've lived in my lifetime in terms of people grabbing hold of the process and saying, I will take to the streets. So what I love is, you know, you saw that we all either saw or participated in the Women's March. You know, marching's important, but... Women are running for office. I mean, I, I read the other day that I think 49 women are either running or planning to run for the Senate, some 390 for the House, and 80 for governorships. Vast majority are Democrats breaking all records. So it's that, plus it's the issues that have come to the forefront in the wake you mentioned Iraq, but, you know, around the economic crisis. You got the $15 minimum wage, Ron, which people used to think was utopian. That is being driven around this country. Uh, Medicare for all. What's taking a real hit, and I'm sure you have thoughts about this, is the feeling that the establishment, whether, you know, liberal or 
conservative has failed people, has not listened to people, has not been where they are, has not felt their pain, has been too distant, has been too technocratic. And I think that's driving a lot of our politics. It's not fully clear where it heads, but I do hope that there's more understanding that there's not just kind of a Trump reactionary ethno-nationalist populism, but there's also what Bernie Sanders put on in 2016, a kind of more inclusive, solidarity, progressive populism that demands attention, especially among younger people, multiracial across the board. So that that begs a question, though, uh, Katrina, and that is, the system's been rigged for a while. Like, Mm -hmm. why now is the moment that people are stepping up and organizing? Where do you think this started and what do you think sparked it? I do think uh, Iraq, financial crisis, growing inequality, attention to it, has taken us now to a place where movements are arising to deal with pathologies or problems of a system which isn't working for millions of people. Now, it's more hopeful when you see women, for example, in the streets marching and now running for office. But, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, that preceded Trump, and it had to do with what was not being recognized enough by those in political power. And so movements, Heather, I mean, I don't don't know if we agree, we may or may not. I mean, I think transformative change in this country's history has come about from social movements. Maybe I feel that because the abolitionists founded the nation, but I think that's partly where we are, this kind of pivotal change of uh, reminding, we're reminded of Gilded Age inequality. And by the way, you write about progressivism. That too sparked a progressivism of a progressive era at the turn of the, you know, in the 1920s, for example. It it certainly did. But you just said a couple of things that I want to throw at you and see if we can come to some kind of a, maybe a new idea about this. The, the linking of Black Lives Matter and abolitionism seems to me to be a really productive one. So, so one of the reasons that I have looked at progressivism at the mo- in the moment and really pushed you on where did it come from is, as I say, equality, inequality in America and the devastating effects of neoliberalism in both the Republican and the Democratic parties have been evident to scholars since 1981 or at least 1983 when the statistics started coming out. And they just kept flowing under the bridge and nobody seemed to care. And similarly with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, it is hardly a new thing that law enforcement has had a fraught relationship with African Americans, but no one seemed to care. And then suddenly in 2013 with the murder of Trayvon Martin, Black Lives Matter took off and got a ton of white support. And what I saw in that moment was what I saw in in the abolitionist movement in the 1840s. And that is this, that white people got on board to the Black Lives Matter movement because that was the moment when they recognized that the actions of the state, the inequalities in the state, and the the rigging of the system, as you said, had become so egregious that their own lives were in danger and the atrocities that were being committed against black people actually gave them something concrete to rally around. Similarly, the Me Too movement looks to me like, like something specific that women can point to to say, you know, the system that's been in place since 1981 has completely screwed us, but now finally we have the issue of sexual assault and sexual harassment to actually give it a face and a name, give them something specific to to point to as the symbol of this rigged system that you talk about. Think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I think so, but I I wish I could be as affirmative in the belief that 
for example, majorities of white people have signed on to Black Lives Matter. I think we've seen under Trump a mainstreaming of racialized politics. You know, white supremacy has made a comeback. And there are conflicts which movements need to respond to. And the Black Lives Matter movement is responding to a new chapter in race history post-Trump. On the Me Too, yeah, but I think we're also looking at an article about why so many white women vote for Trump. I mean, I think there are divisions within groups which need to be understood, not denounced, but it's, as you well know, African-American women who are the spine of the Democratic Party and the multiracial coalitions that are going to be needed but are being tested by these times. Um, I'd come back to the inequality issue and say, too much talk about the white working class because of Trump. Let's talk about the working class broadly defined, African-American, Latino, Asian. I think those are interesting conversations so you don't fall into the class or identity versus class debate, which I think gets us nowhere, certainly not the Democratic Party. But is that the progressive of today versus where we might have termed progressivism in the past? You know, I I certainly agree that Bill Clinton was not considered a progressive. He, in a way, was a response to some of the slaughters electorally, Walter Mondale, Mike Dukakis mm-hmm. in the 1980s with Reagan. And then Clinton says, oh, I got a third way. Right. You know, we're going to, you know, cut the loaf in half and do some sort of middle ground, third way solutions that will take the best of both. You know, and, and I think that that if I read you right and if I read the Times right, is that definition of the wide middle or the middle that can be seized is really vanishing now. I think when politics is fertile, uh, there's an interactive quality, and movements drive politicians to take stances they might not otherwise do. Think of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, He would not have taken certain stances if there had not been a vibrant labor movement. I do think the issues have changed. I mean, who would have thought Medicare for All or 15 minimum wage, as I talked about, or even a Green New Deal or a different trade policy, certainly, than Clinton or even President Obama pushed. So I think, you know, there's a little bit of moaning sometimes about the intra-party fights in the Democratic Party over direction and candidates. But I think the, the energy in those disputes, if they don't become ad hominem, are healthy disputes and I think change the valence of our political issues. There's no question that there will be a fight, and there is one within the Democratic Party for the soul of the party. It's between a more progressive wing, I'd call it a new progressivism, and a more centrist wing. On some issues, there's great convergence. On others, there's not. You know, let it rip. Um, And I I know there's some who say, well, that'll preclude taking back the House or this or that. I'm not sure. I think there's a healthy debate to be had. You know, that is part of what I think we're hearing now for the first time. Truly a healthy debate. There wasn't so much of one during the 90s. And in some ways, when Barack Obama arrives, people said, well, he'll carry forward the torch. But then after that presidency came to an end, folks looked at what were the deliverables and said, God, it didn't quite work. Heather, Where does progressivism originate? Take us back. Well, American progressivism is its own beast. But I always like to say it started on Valentine's Day in 1884. Mm. 
Um, because you got a, a specific day. <laughs> yes, because I, you know, I could even give you a minute. Well, we're coming up on an anniversary. My goodness. <laughs> but he didn't celebrate because that was the day that Teddy Roosevelt lost both his wife and his mother on the same day. They both died of diseases right. that were the product of the filth and the crowding and the pollution of late 19th century cities. And he literally went from his mother's deathbed um, to his his, his wife's. wife. Yeah, yeah. And it was a it was a very very formative moment for for Teddy Roosevelt. Um, progressivism comes from a moment that looks a lot like today in the 1890s, when you know Republican congressmen and presidents literally said in that era that they were working for big business. You know the the Sugar Trust had a senator, the Oil Trust had a senator, and the president said he was the big business president. And they argued that the country's laws should concentrate power among rich businessmen because they were the only ones who would understand how to run the economy and wealth would trickle down. I'm sure you have never heard <laughs> My, so very familiar. I love this, though. I am the senator of the sugar industry. Literally. Literally. And they you, just said it seen, right out. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, but they went so far that even moderate Republicans said, you know, this is nuts. This is not democracy. And uh, we have to trim back government's catering to, to rich businessmen. And when the guys in power still said no, um, younger Republicans, uh, people like Fighting Bob LaFollette of Wisconsin and this guy from New York named Teddy Roosevelt, um, stepped in and took back the GOP, uh, the, the Republican Party, and they insisted a couple of things. They said the government had to base its policies on actual facts rather than the ideology that wealth would trickle down. And they also argued that the government had to make sure that all Americans could rise. So they cleaned up the cities and they insisted that kids get out of the factories and get education so they could be good citizens and they cleaned up the food. Here's one for you. Until we got the Pure Food and Drug Act, it was legal for candy makers to paint lollipops with mm. lead paint and wow. poisonous paint. And if your kid died from it, that was your lookout. It wasn't your problem. You know, when I hear this, uh, Heather and Katrina, it sounds like an issue of the nation. Right there, what Roosevelt and that gang was doing, you know, step by step, every piece of it. I'm so struck by what Heather was saying because there are there's such resonance today. Uh, to begin with the lollipop story, I mean, the dismantling of the administrative state, which is what Steve Bannon has described as what they want to set out and do. If you think about rolling back the regulations which brought us clean air, clean water, ended child labor, that's a return to it. America, which is not great by any measure. But, you know, our next issue is on monopoly, monopoly power. That is an issue that's also risen on the progressive agenda, again, in these last months, couple years. But Roosevelt, trust busting, uh, the danger of concentrated wealth, concentrated power, this is certainly a marker of our time. I'm reminded sometimes of the great Texas populist, Jim Hightower, who suggested that the senators and representatives wear like NASCAR shirts with their sponsors on their T-shirts. So you could see if it was a sugar senator, for example, or a lollipop senator. But we're back That's in those idea. times. <laughs> I know. Just give them, give them the T-shirts, get them the sponsors, so everyone can see in an act of real disclosure. Well, what but, you uh, see what here, Heather talked about well, is fascinating. Yeah, what you hear here is, is really the birth of this idea of government directly changing people's lives, which, again, is so much part of the song that I've read for so many years in your magazine. 
Well, Katrina, you must have a real spring in your step right now. You've been talking the talk of progressivism for decades, often a lonely song uh, sung to an empty room. But now you've got lots and lots of company. How are you feeling? I do worry. I mean, government should be a force for the common good, right? I mean, it should improve the condition of people's lives. There is a danger of co-opting of government where you have so many lobbyists, so much special money, that there's a rigging that uh, I think, you know, our times and the movements of our times are paying attention to in different ways. So I have a spring in my step, but I'm also, you know, understanding of the struggle ahead to restore government uh, to a place where it does work for working people and for the common good. Song of Hope and a Struggle. Uh, Katrina Van de Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Ron, Heather. Thank you. Take care. All right, Heather, stand by. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. You know, Heather, talking to Katrina really makes me think of of the long arc, many decades, 40, 50 years, uh, and we may be at another turning point. You know, you've got the period of Franklin Roosevelt to Ronald Reagan. Franklin carrying forward some of the things that certainly Teddy starts uh, earlier in the century brings them uh, into real fullness as policy that changes lives. Then you've got uh, the Reagan period which is really the realigning presidency, I think, of our lifetime. And, and I remember Barack Obama during uh, the campaign says, I want to be a realigning president, transformational like Reagan. got criticized for that. He's saying, I'm not agreeing with Reagan. I just want to be a president like that, that creates then maybe another 50 years in which we move in a different direction. I don't think that actually occurred during the eight years of Barack Obama, even with a great deal of understandable hopes when he starts out. We may be in a moment now where folks are feeling their way toward realignment rather than it happening in the kaboom of an election. Uh, Because, you know, in so many ways, I see uh, politics sort of telling us the story of American life, election to election. You know, Walter Mondale got slaughtered in 1984. Mike Dukakis, equally so in 1988. Bill Clinton tries his third way because there's got to be a way to square this circle. Then you've got George W. Bush, a more compassionate conservative, not so much, but even he was sort of trying to carry conservatism, which was showing itself to be thinner and thinner in terms of its delivery to people. Try to revive it in a fashion. Didn't really work. You've got Obama arriving, saying, maybe we will do what we hope to do, which he said is his main goal of of his presidency in one meeting, to show that government can have effect on people's lives. But, you know, I'd like to throw something back at you on this. And that's that Barack Obama, in many ways, of course, is transformational. But even in this sense, he is transformational because what his presidency did, aside from everything else, was to open up space for people to say, hey, the way the government is operating doesn't work for me, especially progressives. And it's interesting because he has always reminded me, and I hate to even say this, but he has always reminded me of Grover Cleveland, who was an enormously popular Democratic president in the 19th century, who won three times, yep, although he wasn't sure. he wasn't in the White House the second time. And the 
reforms that were always associated with Teddy Roosevelt. You know, you're winning the odd couple award, <laughs> Grover Cleveland and Barack Obama. <laughs> Don't start me. But <laughs> but the the reforms that were always associated with Teddy Roosevelt, most of them actually started under Grover, Cleveland. Yeah. Cleveland opened the way for all of that. I like and, where you're going and, with this. And because he had a D after yep. his name, he never got the credit for it. Yep. But it was the R's who stepped up and created a progressive movement, which is why I have focused so hard on the Republican yeah. Party. You're the expert. Because it comes from there. You're the Republican because... expert. So interesting. So you think Barack Obama opened the door, created the headroom, the space, as you say, for the progressive reforms that have been bubbling along and now are growing strong. He made Americans remember what America could be and how the government could help that happen. You know, there's no doubt he helped people see a kind of imagination, a kind of sense of possibility in politics, just his very presence did that. The policies maybe didn't follow along as some people hoped, uh, but you're right. There's no doubt Barack Obama showed people that politics is the art of not only the possible, but of imagination, of who we can be as a people. Well, I think that's a nice way to finish our show today. Uh, Heather, a joy and a nice finish. It's always nice to chat, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.